The following lecture was delivered at the 8th Annual National Jewish Retreat, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Please join us in welcoming Rabbi Yitzchak Shachet, all the way from London, England. Rabbi Shachet has served as a spiritual leader of the Mill Hill Synagogue for nearly 20 years and sits on both the Chief Rabbi's Cabinet and the Rabbinical Council of London. Rabbi Shachet is a popular guest on CNN and BBC and frequently lends his writing talents to both Jewish and secular publications around the world, including the famed Guardian newspaper and the Jewish Chronicle. He will now present a lecture entitled, Whose Life Is It Anyway? I suppose I need to preface any remarks here with a simple question. Are there any doctors in the room? Okay, the, re the reason I ask this question is because be this talk is going to invariably incorporate elements of medical ethics, end-of-life issues, things that we can all relate to on different levels because we read about them, maybe even experience them to whatever extent. And I'll be honest, I find it rather challenging for a rabbi to get up and speak about medical issues because, you know, frankly, rabbis and doctors, well, they don't always see eye to eye. I mean, there was this one rabbi who was traveling with several doctors en route to a medical ethics conference in New York City, and this rabbi and these two doctors on either side of him flying from London to New York to JFK. And at one point, one of the doctors says, you know, my, my throat, it's really dry. I've got to go up and get myself a drink. And the rabbi thought, you know what, no, no, don't worry about it. Let me go get you the drink. So up he goes. And as he goes to get the doctor a cup of Diet Coke, the doctor notices that the rabbi had taken off his shoes. So for fun, he looks to the other doctor, winks, and takes one of the shoes and slings it under several seats. The rabbi comes back. He's oblivious. He hands the doctor the Coke. He thanks him profusely, and they carry on their merry way in their flight. After a little while, the other doctor turns around and says, you know, I'm, I'm really thirsty right now as well. I'm going to go get myself a cup of Diet Coke. And the rabbi says, please, please don't allow me. So he picks himself up and he goes and gets the other doctor a cup of Diet Coke, who then proceeds upon seeing the other shoe there to take it, winking to the other doctor and slinging it under the seats. The rabbi comes back, still oblivious, hands the other doctor the cup of Diet Coke, and they carry on their merry way until the pilot announces, ladies and gentlemen, it's now time to fasten your seatbelts. We're going to be making our descent into JFK Airport, at which point the rabbi looks down to put on his shoes and notices they're not there. He then realizes how they've been slung several seats in front and then sees how one doctor is looking at the other and smiling mischievously one to the other. And he turns around to the two smirking doctors and he says, gentlemen, how long are we going to be continuing this rivalry? We're both, we're all grown men. We're all entrusted with sacred tasks. We give so much to humanity. We have to set an example. Why can't we just get along? I mean, I think it's time we stop this whole business of throwing shoes under seats, and spitting into cups of Diet Coke. <laughs> Thank you. You didn't spit in this, did you? <laughs> what I want to do this morning is share with you an analysis of a fascinating case that occurred here many years ago in the United States. <laughs> but rather than just go through some of the 
cut and dry laws. I think it'd be more interesting if we analyze a little bit of their practical application. And as we look at this particular case, we will then come to better appreciate some general halachic sensitivity that might underlie the general sensitivities that go into this most unusual case, but then in turn will also give you broader insight into some Jewish laws, wide-ranging approaches to general critical medical issues and concerns. So this one particular case occurs in 1979 in the eastern United States. It is a case as rare as any, but it serves in its own way beautifully to illustrate some of the most fascinating principles in halacha and its approach to life and death issues as they are, in effect, applied daily. The Orthodox Jewish family gave birth to Siamese twins. They were conjoined at their chest, at their upper body. They were fused at the chest. And these children, they were examined by the first doctor that attended to them, who was very struck to find that even though everything else seemed perfectly normal with these children, he could only but hear one heartbeat. Now, we therefore have over here two children who are effectively sharing one heart. They also shared a liver, but that's not a major problem. The liver itself could always be divided. The bleeding could be stopped, leaving each twin with enough functional liver. The matter of immediate concern was that they shared one heart. And moreover, a normal heart has four chambers. Thus, combined existence should have meant that they now have collectively eight chambers. In actual fact, there were about only six, which means, in other words, that baby girl B, as she became known, had an essentially normal four-chambered heart that was fused to the stunted two-chamber heart of her sister, who became known and whom we will refer to as baby girl A. There was an abnormal septum dividing the heart, which was only a few millimeters thick, so there was no way they could try and cut anything in order to be able to leave two functional hearts. So this presents one very obvious, immediate, ethical, halachic, and indeed legal dilemma. To all intent and purposes, you have two choices here. Option one is to leave both children to live whereby they will invariably die because as the babies will grow, there's no way that that one heart could possibly sustain both. No twins joined at a heart like this would have ever lived more than nine months. Or the alternative is obviously to terminate the life of baby girl A in order to save baby girl B. Now, I want to pause at this point before continuing with the story with the case itself. And I want to interject with something altogether different, which will become relevant as we go along. I mean, I want to attempt in the first instance to explain to you the backbone, if you like, the spine of Judaism's approach to such moral dilemmas. That's going to involve us having to leave the case for a little bit, which we'll come back to and look at something else. Now, it'll seem as though I'm taking you through some kind of winding journey over here today, but by the time I'm finished, you'll see how all the pieces of the puzzle come back and fall in place. You know, in Holland, as well as now other places of Europe, they've legalized euthanasia. And there was this one Jewish man, 
who was enduring a lot of suffering, and he made a conscious decision that he was going to terminate his life. Mercy killing, as it is known, is sanctioned there. He was psychologically assessed and determined to be of sound mind, so they gave the go-ahead. And of course, as a result of him being there, all his many family and friends were informed. They came in from Israel. They came in from the United States. They were going to hold a grand farewell kiddush for him on the Shabbos. And on the Sunday, they'd be all attending his funeral. Sitting there on the Shabbos, taking in the scene, so many of his loved ones sitting around him, he suddenly starts to have a second thought. Maybe, but maybe it's worth putting up with all the suffering because you can't really quite compensate for all the love. And when he's granted a few moments to speak at the Kiddush, he looks at everyone and he says simply, you know, having you all here assembled with me makes me appreciate the power of love. I want you all to know that I'm reconsidering and may well not go through with this procedure tomorrow. And there's silence across the room. And finally, his aging brother-in-law pipes up and says, Marvin, We've schlepped all this way to be here. How could you do this to us? <laughs> the point for consideration is this. What does Jewish law say about euthanasia? Where does it say it and why? And I'm bringing this in really just for introductory purposes because it serves as the right sort of premise for anything that you would typically discuss in Jewish medical ethics, as again, you'll come soon to see. So if I was to ask you the question, what would be the obvious source that you might assume for why euthanasia killing is wrong? Ten Commandments, right? That's the typical answer that would be given. The basic assumption is that terminating life is a biblical violation of murder. God stipulated in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. And that is taken to assume to include all forms of murder, regardless of the quality of the victim's life. There was a classic 19th century scholar, Rabbi Yaakov Tzvi Meckelberg, who made the point that the notion of mercy killing is actually rooted in a much earlier source, long before the Ten Commandments. At the beginning of Genesis, when God introduces to Noah the various laws as they apply to all of mankind, what we know as the Noahide laws, he also included within there, of course, the prohibition of murder. Because, in other words, the law applies to non-Jews as well, that they're not allowed to kill. But note the curious wording in the divine directive. I will demand an account of your blood if you take your own lives. That's the principle of suicide. And the verse then continues, from the hand of man, from the hand of his brother, I will demand the man's life. In other words, God is saying, if you kill, I'll demand your life. I'll hold you accountable. But the question to consider is this. Why is there the double emphasis? We know that no word, no letter in the Torah is there superfluously. It's there for a reason. Every letter is very deliberate. So why the double emphasis in the verse? What are we looking to convey by saying, from the hand of a man, from the hand of your brother? And so this commentary goes on to explain and says, if you kill another human being, you'll be held to account. That's from the hand of man. But what's the emphasis of the additional words from the hand of your brother? So he explains that the Torah is alluding to two types of killing. There is killing someone whom you hate, killing somebody out of rage, out of anger, out of passion. 
that's killing from the hand of man. God says, I will exact your blood as well. But then there is another type of killing as well. There is killing out of compassion. Your brother, someone you might kill out of love for him because you cannot bear to see his plight. This, he argues, is the premise for the prohibition of mercy killing, considered in the verse as outright murder for which you will be held accountable and addressed indeed as one of the seven universal laws as it applies to all mankind. So then there's another question to consider. Why? Murder, I understand. Killing somebody whom you hate, killing somebody who you might have ill feeling towards, or whatever the case may be, I understand. Manslaughter with its lesser form of punishment that the terror prescribes, I get that too, but why is it prohibited to put somebody out of their suffering. The advocates for euthanasia essentially come from one of two perspectives, one of two arguments. The first is simply the fact that one is morally obligated to support life. At the same time, one is morally obligated to minimize suffering and pain, to save somebody from agony. And therefore, if somebody is, God forbid, terminally ill and suffering, you have a conflict of principles, and you have to weigh up one against the other. The other argument, which is a common buzzword in the legal and medical profession today, of course, is autonomy. It's my life, and all things considered, I reserve the right to make my own decision about my own life to determine my own fate. If I want to step into my own back garden, and I want to choose to burn down my own house, so long as I'm not affecting anyone else, I'm entitled to do so. It's my possession. And so too, therefore, the argument goes with regard to my own body, my own life as well. I can do with it as I so please. And if I am enduring suffering, then I reserve the right to terminate my life accordingly. So Judaism, of course, comes along and says that it's a mistake to argue in regards to the first argument, that one has an obligation to terminate suffering. There's a lot of commentary that suggests that's all part of life's experience, and whether we get it or not, there is value even in suffering. And that's, again, a basic argument that is assumed by a number of codifiers who reject the case for euthanasia. And as much as the first argument is, again, that as much as we have a responsibility to support life, we also have a responsibility to minimize suffering, the suggestion is, no, you don't. You can't go to the extreme. There is value in suffering, and sometimes you've got to roll with the punches. It's part of a divine plan, and so be it. Personally, I think that comes down to philosophical perspective, and frankly, although it's well beyond the scope of this lecture, I think you can argue the case for and against the so-called value in suffering. I'd like to come at it from an altogether different angle, the retort to that argument. This is a rather challenging idea, and one that I found myself grappling with in particular on a very personal level in the last couple of weeks. There is a Talmud in the Tractate Tuba that tells a story, a well-known story about the very famous Rabbi Yehuda, called the leader and the prince, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, because he single-handedly authored the Mishnah was the father, if you like, of the published oral law as we know it. And he had taken seriously ill, and he was suffering a great deal. And the Talmud tells us how his students were assembled around his bed, and they're praying for him, and they're pleading from on high. 
his trusted maid who had been with him for so long and watched the extent of the pain that he was enduring and the struggle to even put on tefillin. He had a real bad stomach problem and etc. All of, all of the mitzvot that he would otherwise normally want to do and crave to do and spiritually yearn to do was a real struggle for him. And she saw his real pain and suffering. The students, obviously, they want to keep their Rebbe with them. But she saw the pain, she saw the suffering, and she couldn't bear to see him like that. It also became obvious to her that it was the power of, her stu- of his student's prayer that was effectively keeping him alive. Again, an altogether different discussion about the power of prayer, how it works, etc. So she went to the rooftop, and she threw down some earthen vessel, which then landed on the ground with a loud crash. And that sound distracted the students, even if only momentarily, such that they stopped praying. And it was in that precise moment that Rabbi Yehuda died. Now, bearing that story in mind, there is a Talmud elsewhere that tells us, when you visit the sick, you will invariably pray for them to live. When you don't visit the sick, quote says the Talmud, you are not praying for that individual to live or to die. The Talmud, of course, is looking to put a lot of emphasis, and it's a lesson we can all take in life, about the importance of visiting the ill. Make the time. Don't find the excuses. Because in doing so, says the Talmud, you are demonstrating how you want that person to live. But the Talmud goes one critical step further and says, and if you don't do so, when you don't visit the sick, then you are not just remaining geographically detached from the ill person, you are demonstrating that you are emotionally detached from that person, and thus you're not going to be the one praying for that person to get better. But then the Talmud adds in the curious wording, you won't pray for him to live or to die. And the commentators, Rabbinistan of Gronim and others explain, citing the story of Rabbi Yehuda, there are times when it may indeed be right to pray for a person to pass on. Citing the story of Rabbi Yehuda, he explains that when one is enduring so much suffering and pain, it is right to pray for their quick demise so that they be out of their suffering and the soul can find its peace, just as the maid of Rabbi Yehuda did. Again, like I say, it's a very challenging concept. It's one I grappled with recently when watching my father endure his suffering. It's the struggle and the balance between where you draw the line of bitachin, faith, and trust, and where you reach to this sort of point. And again, that's not for any detailed discussion over here right now, but it's compelling to consider how, on the one hand, Judaism puts so much emphasis on the importance of life. That's a given. We know that. You've got to always choose life. You have to live. But by the same token, we're suggesting that in some instances, it is, in the words of another great codifier, Rabbi Yechiel Epstein, right and proper to pray for the person to pass on. Didn't Jonah, after all, do that, as we'll be reading about in the Haftarah and Yom Kippur? He asked God to take his life because he couldn't bear it anymore. So the question is, if all of life is supposed to be better than death, then why does the Talmud sanction the notion of praying for death? Clearly, there are instances in which death itself is the better option to life. With all that suffering. In which case, why don't we oppose euthanasia? 
if I see, or rather, why do we oppose euthanasia? If I see a poor man suffering, what am I supposed to do? I see him starving. I don't stand there and merely pray for that poor man to find food. I have to be proactive. I've got to reach into my pocket. I give him money. I give him food. I give him something to drink. Similarly, the Talmud is clearly sanctioning the idea of praying for somebody to pass on if they're enduring so much suffering. Is that where I draw the line? Should I just be praying for that person that he should be put out of his suffering? Why can't I then also there be proactive to actually put that person out of their suffering? Why can I not proactively terminate that person's life? And the point over here is that it has everything to do with man's relationship with life and his body. You see, the first argument that we mentioned before, the proponents of euthanasia suggest that I have an obligation to minimize suffering. The second and more common argument is autonomy. I have a right to determine my own fate. Judaism comes along and says, no, you don't. The notion of it's my life is fundamentally flawed. You are the custodian, not the proprietor of your body. You don't own it. It was merely entrusted with you in order to enable your soul, which is an extension of the divine, to find expression in this world, to be able to engage in this world, to be able to do whatever good it can. The soul in and of itself, like Kabbalah goes on to discuss, the body and the soul is like the candle and the wick, and you need both, hand in hand, in order to be able to allow the flame to achieve its purpose and objective. And thus, you have a responsibility to protect that body to the best of your ability. You cannot self-inflict. You cannot be masochistic. You cannot tattoo. And you cannot terminate that body until God himself decides to do so. Now, there was a thesis done on, uh, on Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, a religious thesis, thesis on whether it's ever acceptable to sell a pound of flesh and the conclusion was that it is axiomatic in the laws of commerce that you can only sell that which you own, that which is rightfully yours. Your flesh doesn't belong to you, hence it cannot be sold. Your possessions, your material assets, your house, your car, whatever it is, there are enough verses in the Torah that attest to the idea that these are things that God gave you by which you are meant to do goodness in the world. But your body, that's it. It's not really yours in the first instance. You can use, you cannot abuse. There is no autonomy. And that then serves as the very basis for the various parameters of Jewish medical ethics. The many laws as they apply, whether it's end-of-life issues, whether it be abortion, whether it be organ transplant, all these things are not automatic license. The reason why they're opened up to debate and why there's a whole huge school of thought that argues against is precisely because who does this belong to in the first instance? They have to be sanctioned by God, as it were, and therefore any such question has to be analyzed within the context of God's law, of Jewish law. Simple question. What gives Dr a license to meddle with the human body. If it's not yours, then when things go wrong, maybe that's not for you to be able to do anything with it. What gives the doctor the right to then be able to go and cut into the body to make changes to it? It's entrusted with you. Now God allowed for illness to inflict, so that's where you're supposed to draw the line. And the truth be told, 
that indeed you would not be allowed to, were not for two words in the Torah itself, berapa yerape, heal, he shall heal. It is precisely those two words that give, that whereby God gives license to man to heal another man, whatever it takes. Only God gives the mandate to do what you are allowed to do, which by the way, as an incidental point, also implies that no doctor is allowed to condemn. By definition, as per the famous story of the daughter of the Tzemach Tzedek who took ill and the doctor was very glum in his prognosis and nonetheless, the Tzemach Tzedek looked to him and said, look, your job is to heal. That's what God gave you license to do, not to condemn her to death and tell me that that's it, game over. And of course, she went on to live. And I'm sure many people here will relate to a similar experience where doctors, whether they're erring on the side of caution, whether they truly believe what they're throwing out over there, but my father was told by his oncologist that he had up to a maximum of nine months, and thank God we had three, a little bit over three precious years with him beyond that point. Boy, was that doctor wrong. In fact, so much so that last February, this past February, when they finally took him off all his medication, they said at this point, Nobody really goes beyond three months. And then they looked at my father and said, having said that, and fair enough, three months turned to four months, to five months, to six months, etc. And that then brings us back to our case. Inasmuch as there was a lot of legal consideration in that particular story that we were referring to about the conjoined twins, Jewish law is going to feature prominently And what we're going to discover along our little journey is the pragmatic and equally ethical approach that Judaism takes to these critical life issues, bearing in mind, again, that your life is not your own. So these children, they were flown to the Children's Hospital in Pennsylvania, the major pediatric hospital, and they were going to be attended to by one Dr. Everett Koop. Some of you may know the name because he went on later to become the Surgeon General. And just to give you a brief background to him, he was actually a devout Presbyterian. It is said he would spend the night before any major surgery in hospital reading the Bible. Mind you, they said that Tony Blair used to do the same sort of thing every night, but, you know, we'll leave that out for the moment. He had the unique qualifications to deal with the medical and ethical dilemmas posed by the twins' lethal union. Twice before... He had actually separated twins, a rare operation that few pediatric surgeons do even once. But in either instance that he himself had engaged in the surgery, neither involved a shared heart. No, moreover, actually, as a deeply religious man, he himself had frequently spoken out nationally about the sanctity of human life. And the growing public acceptance at the time of abortion was a source of outrage to him, to Dr. Koop, and he was concerned about the growing trend already then in medicine to let or even help defective newborns die. So it was particularly ironic that such a man should be called upon to do this operation, an operation that would, with certainty, leave one child dead. But as soon as he examined these twins, Dr. Koop knew what had to be done, and without Waiting, he placed a call to the twins' father and parents, and he arranged a meeting. Now, these family, they were devoutly Orthodox Jews, as we said. The hospital was a Catholic institution, 
the doctor himself, a deeply religious man, so religion was invariably going to get into the mix over here. The case also had to be taken to the Supreme Court because the hospital was concerned that they're not going to be accused of homicide because they're going to invariably take the life of one child uh, in order to potentially save the life of another, and they're taking it to court because they wanted to pursue the surgery, but they didn't want to be sued for killing the child. And so it's fascinating how everybody's getting involved over here, the medical perspective, the legal perspective, and the religious perspective as well. Dr. Koop proposed the following agonizing suggestion to the family, to the parents. All previous such-like situations reported in whatever medical literature did not survive. Even already in this instance, on the day 21 of the child, children's birth, the concern had already emerged because they started to undergo some heart failure. So a decision needed to be made and needed to be made fast. Dr. Koop suggested to the family that the only alternative is to separate the twins, which means sacrificing the life of one of the twins. And in this case, like we said at the beginning, it was about saving baby girl B because the heart was mostly in her chest cavity and he wanted to leave the heart there. Baby girl A would be actively terminated as a result of the separation. And then, of course, the plan was to use rib grafts from her to close the chest cavity of baby girl B. So the family, the parents, well, they're now going to consult with their rabbi, who in turn referred the question to a higher rabbinic authority, and the question ended up on the doorstep of the late Rabbi Moshe Feinstein Zatzal, the great halachic authority of the 20th century. As I understand it, his initial reaction was to avoid making a decision. I mean, it's such a complex case, but it was left to him ultimately to have to do so. And he, in turn, lined up a team of consultants who were also halachists, experts in Jewish law, as well as medical professionals. One was his grandson, who was superintendent of Laniado Hospital in Israel. The other was son-in-law, professor of biology at NYU. I'm told he fasted for 11 days each time during the course of the day as they were deliberating over this case, eating only at night, because when the burden of life rests on your shoulders, you want to make every day your Yom Kippur. Contrast that to the many today who are so quick to take life. They would spend four to five hours each day discussing all the ramifications and all the implications of the case. So whilst a surgical team on the one hand is being assembled, the halachic process is now also underway. And the doctors, knowing that would be the ultimate decision, didn't know what the end result was going to be. They know that the parents are going to obviously go with what their halakhic authorities are going to tell them. Now, with all due respect, surgeons have a certain type of personality. They like to do things cut and dry. They come in well-prepared, and they like to do it fast and effective. I mean, you know, they say that doctors and surgeons have this standoff between them. The surgeon typically accuses always the physician of being a pipe-smoking thinker who doesn't do much for the patient. The physician accuses the surgeon of being knife-happy, a mercenary. You might argue that there is some truth in both and that different personality types are typically drawn to different forms of medicine. I mean, ask anyone. They'll tell you pediatricians are really nice guys always warm, always friendly. Psychiatrists, they're always... Never mind, let's, let's move on. <laughs> the point is, 
doctors did not know what was going to happen in this instance. Interestingly, the Catholic hospital asked its own ecclesiastical authority, and the priest ruled that they should proceed with surgery. But there were any number of of nurses there who felt emotionally unable to participate in a surgery where they would know, ab initio, that they would be terminating life. You see, these nurses, some of them became close to these babies. These babies had already developed in a short period of time their own little personalities. Baby girl A was more nervous, more irritable. Baby girl B was more placid, more relaxed. In itself, by the way, also an interesting observation. It ties in with the Talmudic statement that no two personalities are the same. In this instance, they share a body, they even share a heart, but they're different in character. The fact is, and any surgeon will concur with this, for all the surgeries that take place in an operating theater, most people don't actually die in surgery. The job gets done, the individual is wheeled out into recovery, where then it becomes someone else's problem. So to step into the surgery for these nurses, knowing you will effectively be killing, was difficult to say the least. And yes, it took time to assemble a team of nurses for the surgery as well. Now, as the surgery is being planned, the matter is also being debated, like we said, by the aforementioned halachic giants and medical experts. Now, bear with me, because what I need you to do now is hold on for the ride. We're going to take you through some of the issues as they arose, which sheds light on, again, the broader range of general halachic legal and ethical issues. Issue number one. Issue number one was triage. This is the idea of which life to save when you cannot save all. It takes its roots in World War I, when there were essentially three categories. Category one was the walking wounded. They would survive even if you didn't attend to them. Category two were those who would likely die even if you did attend to them. And category three is sort of the middle area, raising the question as to which one takes priority. Who do you attend to? And this is an area well worked out in jurisprudence as well as in halacha. When you see, for example, somebody bleeding, and you can step in to save them, do you have to? In the United States, generally speaking, you probably wouldn't for fear of being sued. It's like the guy lying on the sidewalk outside a train station in Times Square, bleeding away, and one by one, people are walking past him until one psychotherapist kneeled down, looked at him, and said, whoever did this to you needs help. (laughs) And halacha... And halacha, you are obligated to do what you can to save someone else. What happens if two people, therefore, are brought into an emergency room and both are bleeding away? Which life do you save if you cannot save both? So the answer in Jewish law is that you attend to the first one that you come across. We have a concept, ein ma'avirin ala mitzvot, you cannot bypass a mitzvah, if it presents itself to you, then all things being equal, you attend to that which comes to your hand first. When two people are brought into an emergency room and one is your brother, who do you attend to first? Then it would actually be your brother because we have another principle of mipsarcha altisalim. In other words, you do not hide from your own flesh and blood. What happens if your brother is further away? Still the biblical mandate of mipsarcha altisalim takes precedence over the other principle of Ein Mavirin al mitzvah, so you don't bypass a mitzvah. Another interesting consideration. When two patients are equal distance, and one is terminally ill, 
for the purposes of this conversation, we'll say define a Jewish law as going to die inside of a year. Then who do you attend to? The answer there would be the one who would otherwise live much longer, even if he is further away, because here again we have the principle of what we call chaye shah, momentary life, versus chaye olam, long life. The major exception to this would be when the one who is terminally ill is also conscious, and the fact that he sees you walk past him towards the other patient might be an additive lethal factor, because you're going to cause him anguish, you're going to cause him despair. Ah, look, they've given up on me. That in itself can hasten his demise, and you can't be responsible for that. And of course, that raises another discussion well beyond the scope of here regarding truth-telling to patients, etc. Now, inasmuch as that is when it comes to the question of who to save, of course, in our case scenario, we're talking about killing one in the first instance in order to save another, and that is an altogether different situation. The surgeon here is confronted with what he described as only a slight chance of saving baby girl B at the expense of certainly killing baby girl A against the alternative of where it is safely assumed you just let them both live on, but they will certainly then both die. So Rabbi Moshe Feinstein raised a number of questions with Dr. Koop, which he, Dr. Koop didn't quite understand, didn't quite get at first. He couldn't understand why the sage rabbi was asking such complex questions that to him did not seem relevant to the case. But we'll look at them and we'll understand why the questions were asked and how indeed that then also again applies in other arguably more typical case scenarios as well. First question he asked was, are they one or two babies? Would you define this as one entity, albeit with two parts, heads, hands, etc.? Or would you actually suggest that it's two separate entities? What is the relevance of this question? Why was the sacred rabbi asking this question? Well, if you consider them to be but only one baby, then what you're really doing when removing or terminating one baby constitutes no more than an amputation. You're allowed to remove a limb in order to sustain the rest of the body. There was a case, a number of cases that people might be aware of with amputation, how you, what you do with the limb, how you bury the limb, etc., etc. In fact, in halacha, if a, pu- a person refuses to have a limb amputated in order to save their life, In Jewish law, you can even force him to do so. You get four big chassidim to sit on top of him, and you do what you have to do. (laughs) Again, in the States, you'll probably get arrested for aggravated assault and maybe even sued to the nines for wrongful life. But the bottom line is that life is paramount. It is a God-given gift, and you don't reserve the right to call it your own and terminate it. If an amputation can save you, then we do even force the amputation. As an incidental point over here, again, just as a side tidbit, even as you should amputate your limb, if it leads to saving your life, should you amputate your limb in order to save someone else's life? That question actually arose with a um, famous Middle Eastern codifier in the early 16th century, known as the Radvaz. A Jew had been arrested in Turkey for stealing. The punishment for theft in Islamic countries is that you have your arm chopped off. So he ran away to Egypt. The Sultan got word to him that unless he returned to face his punishment, 
then his close friend is going to be taken instead and killed. So he raised the question and was told that it is most laudable for you to return and give up your arm to save your friend's hands, your friend's life, but you're not obligated to do so. So this, of course, then relates to the whole issue of organ donation. Am I obligated to give up a kidney in order to save someone else's life? It's a vital organ of mine, but do I have to give it up? Here, clearly, one thing is for sure, it is the right thing to do, but not necessarily obligatory as such. And again, we're not going to get into that detailed discussion now either. But as a curious case in point, there was an 11-year-old girl who was a match for her older brother. And the court ruled that she was of the age of consent to sign the form to give up an organ to save her brother. The Supreme Court overruled it because it was argued when she's going to be older than the psychological effects of knowing that she could have saved her brother but didn't would be to her detriment. And therefore, they allowed her to give her consent. In halacha, that doesn't hold up. You have to be of sound mind, by definition, 12 or 13, in order to give your consent. The second question asked of the doctor in our case scenario was a very peculiar question. The doctors didn't understand its relevance. And again, we're going to have to take a little detour which will shed light on the premise of the question. Rav Moshe wanted to know, you're saving baby B because most of the heart is in her cavity chest. But if you wanted, was there some way in which you could save baby A? And again now, Coop is perplexed. Why is he asking an irrelevant question. The fact is that it's a definite, safer bet to say baby B, far greater. So what's the relevance? Who cares if there is some way that maybe we could otherwise save baby A? So why was that question asked? This brings us into a famous concept known as the laws of Rodef, the law of the aggressor. Now let's be clear that halacha deals with the pure, hypothetical, clear, and defined case scenario. As in science, we look to study the principle in isolation, all else being equal. So in this instance, the rule is that when one is pursuing somebody else with intent to kill that person, then if the only way to stop that person, that pursuer, is by killing them, then you're obligated to do so. The basic premise for this is self-defense. Even as I cannot defend myself, which I'm certainly entitled to do, someone else can step in to defend me. In fact, it's mind-boggling to consider how the English courts only recently passed a law to allow me to go to the extreme if I need to. If someone steps over my threshold in my home in the UK, up until recently, I could try to do what I could do to chase them out of my home, I can call 999 as the emergency number is there, whatever else, but if I actually killed the intruder, there could be all kinds of implications for me. Now that law has at least changed, only recently, to allow me to do whatever is necessary to protect myself in my own home. But here, Allah is telling us one step further that I can step in and intervene when somebody else is aggressively pursuing somebody with intent to kill, that I can, if necessary, if that's what it comes down to, kill that person to stop him from killing the other. The classical medical application of this, of course, is abortion. When a fetus is threatening the mother's life, then you have a right to terminate the fetus in order to save the mother. Why? Not because we do not consider the fetus to be a human being. In Jewish law, terminating a fetus in ordinary circumstances is in itself tantamount to suicide. You know that 
age-old Jewish joke in Christianity, a fetus is considered a living entity from the point of conception. In Judaism, a fetus remains a fetus until it graduates from medical school. But really, <laughs> the fetus is real, and when it is threatening the mother's life, it is precisely because now it takes on the label of aggressor, pursuing the mother's life, and we therefore have to do what we have to do in order to save the mother. Then there's a broad scope of halachic discussion. If the baby's head is already out, then it's considered born into the world, and to that end it becomes an equal playing field. Who says your blood is red or etc.? And then there's a discussion about it better be, it, it's better to have a Jewish doctor do this because it's more complex halachically for a non-Jewish doctor. Better to have a female doctor doing this for all kinds of different halachic reasons, etc., again, which we're not going to get into now. Incidentally, the prohibition for abortion is also found in that same section of Noahide laws. It, too, doesn't fall just under the more restricted category of thou shalt not kill from the Ten Commandments, but like we demonstrated before in regard to mercy killing, there is an earlier verse that we referenced in regard to universal capital prohibition against killing, and the choice word over there is shofech dam ha'adam. If you kill a person, ba'adam dama yeshofech, you will be killed by man. In other words, capital punishment. If you kill, then you're subject to capital punishment as your punishment. But another reading of this verse can be shofech dam ha'adam ba'adam, killing a person within a person, namely abortion, dama yeshofech, that too is a capital crime. Now, I stand to be corrected on this, but arguably, in Catholicism, the rule would be that you would sacrifice the life of the mother for the sake of the fetus. That's because the mother has already been baptized and will therefore find her way immediately into heaven. But the child, however, having been born as a result of original sin, still needs to be baptized, um, lest he goes through a difficult time in the next world. So you might save him instead of actually the mother herself. In fact, there was a tragic case in Israel of blue fire. There were three different platoons. And the third platoon was a platoon, apparently, of religious soldiers who observed how another platoon was observing yet a third platoon, assuming them to be enemy combatants, and proceeded to fire on them. And the third platoon, the, the religious platoon observing all of this, have themselves a real moral dilemma here. Do we kill, call them platoon B, to prevent them from shooting at platoon A? Because effectively they're all part of the same. But they held their fire. And whatever tragically happened, happened. And they were told afterwards by Rabbi Yashav that it was the right thing because that's not a case of aggressor. Platoon B wasn't looking to kill Platoon C as aggressors with deliberate intent. It was an unfortunate case of mistaken identity. They assumed them to be the enemy combatants. And therefore, the third platoon, not doing anything, Shevel Tasa, was what they chose to do. And what they were told thereafter was the right thing to do. Another case scenario that comes into play in our context. If a Jewish caravan is surrounded by non-Jews, and they're told to give up one or all are going to die, can you give up one? Right? Maimonides rules? No. That we all die is irrelevant, but in handing him over, we are all effectively killing him. Again, if they happen to name him, 
That's a different story because that suggests that already a divine decree, but that's otherwise if they just say hand over one of them, then nobody has the right to do that because then everybody is participating in his murder. The principle is that you cannot sacrifice the few to save the many. And there's a discussion about a particular case um, where a driver's brakes fail and is careening down a road, heading towards a bus stop with 10 people, as an example. And the driver was going to perform a decisive action in order to veer away and effectively kill only two people on the other side of the street. Can he do so? The Chazanish ruled that he can. And he was challenged because he too was then sacrificing the few in order to save the many. And he explained by distinguishing between the deflection of an arrow, which is an act of saving people, and to, to, to that of turning over an individual, which is a cruel act of killing. In other words, handing over a person to his death is essentially an act of murder. The salvation of the masses being only a byproduct of the deed. By contrast, deflecting an arrow going in one direction where it will kill many more to a different direction, where it will kill fewer, is essentially an act of saving lives. The consequent killing being an unfortunate byproduct. And the Chazanish therefore wrote that in this sort of case scenario, it's possible that we should seek to save the many people as possible, even at the cost of the other lives, as you're going to now kill a few. But then he wasn't entirely certain of his own logic, and he proceeds to write a flip side argument that deflecting the arrow might in fact be worse than turning somebody over, because there it involves an actual act of murder. You're carrying the weapon and now simply targeting it at somebody else. So the conclusion in that instance offered by Rabbi Eliezer, Waldenberg, etc., is that it is better, there too, to shev vi'altase odif, preferable to just sit, remain passive, even where a group of people will be killed, then take the active step of now killing others instead. Now we're going to see why all this is relevant and where we're heading with all of this. The only basis for killing child A is in line with the abortion scenario that we mentioned before. You see, baby A, you can argue, is essentially a rodef. Baby A is an aggressor. She is threatening the life of her sister. But this in itself is only a valid argument if we were to say that there's absolutely no way with which to be able to save the life of baby girl A. And that's why the question was asked, is there any way in which baby girl A's life could be saved? Because if baby A had even the slightest slim chance of being saved, then each one can argue against the other, you are the cause of my death. You're my aggressor. What gives you the right to sacrifice over the sake of the other? It's only when A wasn't going to survive anyway that she is nothing other right now than a rodef, an aggressor, effectively threatening the life of baby girl B, and we therefore deem her that aggressor, the rodef, and we then reserve the halachic right to terminate her life. Now, during the debate, one of the rabbis asked Rabosha, if two men jump out of an airplane, and one's parachute fails, and the other grabs hold of his feet. But the combined weight cannot be sustained by the parachute. Can the first guy kick off the hands of the second? It's kind of a black and white scenario of the Talmud, of the two men in the desert with only one flask of water, where we rule that you save yourself with your own flask of water. Why? Because 
You're being passive. The other guy's a shlamazal. He forgot his water at home. He forgot his iPhone at home. But you're being passive. You're not killing him. You're holding on to your own water over here. You're entitled to hold on to your own. His dying is a passive effect of my action. Similarly, with end-of-life scenarios, exceptions where Shev Altaisa, again, sitting and doing nothing, you have those kind of scenarios as well, which is, again, raises the whole specter about turning off a machine, etc. But that's distinctively different to actively handing someone over, like we said. In our case, terminating the life of A for B. So now let's close the circle. So Rav Moshe asked his question, based on his concerns, which we discussed. Koop answered, as he did, A could not be saved, hence she was a Rodef, she was an aggressor, and she could then be terminated. Rav Moshe gave the go-ahead for the surgery to take place. But there was another interesting dynamic to this case as it was transpiring, and it also ties in with a broad range of end-of-life issues. It was on Thanksgiving Day that three Supreme Court judges convened a meeting to discuss the case. And a team of lawyers were making representations, and they argued the case on the basis of what we know as lifeboat ethics. If you have a boat with not enough food for everyone in the boat, can you throw one overboard to save the others? Arguably, the general legal common law principle is that that the general good outweighs the general bad, and then you follow the course of action for the benefit of the general good. Here, the general good was saving one life, and the general bad is that both would otherwise die. Halakha, of course, rejects this principle outright. During the proceedings, the lawyers put forward the following argument. One key issue, vexed to medical ethics, is the very definition of death. What must constitute death? And this is a critical issue because when it comes to heart transplant, it's very, very important to define death accurately. A heart cannot be transplanted if you're going to wait for it to stop because then the, the cells are going to stop functioning and pretty quickly it'll become useless. Effectively, you can only transplant a beating heart. Now, I'm not going to get into that detailed discussion here as well. In the second rule, they conveniently changed the definition of death from the cessation of heart and respiratory function to that of brain death. Otherwise, you could never remove a heart and engage in transplant. And, of course, that has given way to huge halakhic debate um, in our modern world today, which I'm not going to get into at this point, and there are other people in this room who are, no doubt, more capable of giving you insight into that sort of discussion and debate. But in regard to our case scenario, what should be considered over here is that today in the United States, Europe, most other continents, it is accepted that brain death is what determines the demise of the person. But that really only kicked in in 1980, when the President's Commission sat and decided to implement the new criteria of irreversible coma. Our case is taking place at the end of the 70s. The first cardiac transplant took place in 1986. Mechanical hearts is still an evolving science today. So there's no option of giving baby girl A a heart. The definition of death prior to 1980 was cessation of a spontaneous heartbeat. So the lawyers argue the following. If it's a spontaneous heart, or rather the cessation of spontaneous heartbeat that actually determines death, then they said, well, hey, there shouldn't be a problem for it over here. Why? Wait for it. Because no heart will stop beating. There's but only one heart over here. And it's not as if you're now going to cause a heart to stop beating. It's not as if you're going to now be considered committing murder. That was the definition of death, a heart stopping to beat. 
But if the heart is not stopping to beat, because you're just simply maneuvering it into one baby, then that in itself shouldn't constitute murder per se. Typical legal acrobatics, a loophole within a loophole, of course. Torah law is absolute, and there are no loopholes to be found therein. Of course, the judge himself also threw it out, because if you take that to his logical conclusion, then just find somebody you don't like, hack out their heart, put it in isotonic acid in your lab, it keeps beating, and technically, if you never kill them, after all. So understand why the judge obviously threw out the argument. There's an absurdity to that. And so therefore, in summation, Dr. Koop himself performed the surgery, an emotionally challenging task of removing the valves connected to baby girl A. No one knew if there would be arterial fibrillation, but in the end, the heart continued to pump as normal. He also then personally carried baby girl A to a sterile, to baby girl A to a sterile incubator where her, where she would be stored for her ribs to be able to use to close the cavity chest of baby girl B. That wasn't required in the end. He then made sure to deliver the baby personally to the parents before sunset so that she could still be buried the same day as required in Jewish law. Now that surgery, in its own way, probably provoked more debate, more soul-searching on the part of the staff, and more concern about the law, both Jewish and secular, than most or many other surgeries. It was deemed a tremendous sanctification of God's honor that the best medical, legal, and ethical minds, Jew and non-Jew alike, came together and reached a unanimous conclusion. Although, our little exercise here today demonstrates how they effectively arrived at it from diametrically opposing positions. Let me leave you with a final thought. They tell about a young boy who was drowning in the sea and... A man runs out there, grabs him, and saves him. And the boy looks to the man and thanks him profusely. Thank you for saving my life. To which the man replied, that's okay, kid. Just make sure your life was worth saving. Our lives are sacred beyond our own realizations and our own pleasures of it. We're all put here for a purpose. We're all intended to use our lives for special purpose. There is always something divine at stake within every given day and every given moment that we live. And therefore, what this one little exercise demonstrates in the huge sphere of medical ethics is that we never dare take any of it lightly.